0: Hey everyone and welcome to this special podcast from OsCert's 2013 conference on the Gold Coast. I'm Patrick Gray. This podcast is brought to you by Sophos, security made simple, DataCom TSS, discreet, niche, tailored, and bugcrowd.com, outsourced bug bounty programs. Big thanks to all of our sponsors for making this coverage possible. The following is a recording of Marcus Ranham's OSCERT keynote speech on Cyberwar. <laughs> Marcus was doing the circuit a few years ago with a talk titled Cyberwar is Bullshit, which I think makes clear his position. Uh, but this one uh, is titled Never Fight a Land War in Cyberspace, and it's a tad more nuanced. He basically argues that the application of traditional military thinking to the cyber domain is fundamentally flawed. He also argues there's a massive money and power grab taking place as the military and the private sector defence base tries to set the agenda so that it can profit from this whole thing. It's a really worthwhile talk uh, and delivered with some flair that Marcus is known for. Enjoy.
1: Thank you. Um, Okay, now I get to figure out how this works. Uh, Various stuff about how to get hold of me, um, in case you're interested. And I've had so many people ask me how I'm doing this morning, I prepared a little chart. um, Which, uh, well, me and Edward Tufte, what can I say? Um, So... What I wanted to talk about is is something a little bit odd and kind of a field. I've been fairly notoriously bashing cyber war for the last 14 years as being a ridiculous topic. And people keep asking me why. um, Because I think they perceive arguing against cyber war as arguing against self-interest. Obviously, all of us in the computer security community stand to make a great deal of money off of cyber war and off of the militarization of cyberspace. So it seems a little bit contradictory why you would have a practitioner saying, no, you know, I actually, I'm actually interested in leveling the playing field by selling defensive technologies to everybody, including the enemy, whoever the hell the enemy is. So... Um, I find myself over and over trying to explain why I think the way that we're approaching militarization of cyberspace is a bad idea. And I keep taking different tacks on it. And this time, I thought I would take a tack that's, that's you know, honestly, it's, I'm just indulging myself a little bit. I've been a, a fairly serious amateur military historian for uh, 35 plus years, give or take, um, ever since I almost fell off a wall at Carcassonne when I was a kid. Um, and I've uh, just been fascinated in the topic and, and have, have read, read a great deal. And I thought it would be interesting to talk about if we really want to look at cyberspace as a domain of military activity, what do some of the concepts that people use the term, the, they use military terms a lot regarding things in cyberspace. And so then the question is, do those concepts actually match? Do those terms actually make any kind of sense in cyberspace? Um, and so I, I thought I would try to um, shed a little bit of light or get you to think a little bit about the validity of some of the things that people are talking about. And especially if you're you know, inside the Washington Beltway, you hear people talking about all kinds of stuff like uh, you know, uh, active defense. We want, to st- we want to do active defense against Chinese cyber espionage. And then, of course, by the way, if you want to torture those people, raise your hand run to the microphone, raise your hand and say, what do you mean by active defense? Get them to define it. Don't just let them use a term of art incorrectly and, and sort of blow by it. It would be as if, it, well, it would be as if I was going to say that you know, I was going to firewall my refrigerator. You, you'd kind of think, what, right? At, at least hopefully you would think what? Um, Especially if you, I mean, unless I had some lettuce that had been in there for a very long time. The the question of having a firewall in a refrigerator is really something that doesn't really make a lot of sense. So one of the things that's going on is that the terms of military usage, the, 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 the language of von Clausewitz on war, and the mindset of the Treaty of Westphalia, that nations only make war on nations, and that individuals are not privileged to undertake warfare, Which is, if you think about that, that's a kind of an aberrant concept. But that is where most of the militaries of the world are coming from when they're talking about cyberspace, right? You've got these notions of illegal combatants and all this kind of stuff, Uh, notions which, by the way, don't appear any place in international humanitarian law regarding combat. But they come up with these ideas as ways of further delimiting the problem for themselves and for their own purposes. So I'd like to kind of talk about that. and so the question the, the main question we're going to be talking about this morning is if cyber war is a new domain of warfare, who's thinking about battlefield doctrines? Right? Who's thinking about this as a strategic question and who's thinking about this as a tactical question? And I've I've already loaded this by by throwing in the notion of battlefield doctrines, right? Battlefield doctrines is a military term. It uh, It applies to specifically battlefields and battlefields are inherently topological. I couldn't come up with a good word for it so I've been using the word topological throughout this talk. When I talk about something having to do with topological warfare, what I mean is you're dealing with warfare that is occurring or conflict that is occurring in three space. You've got, um, you know, land, you know, space, land, whatever. You've got horizontal and, and, and vertical axes. You've got a map. You've got geography. And you've got all of the physical properties of the real world. And so, really, the core question here that I want to dig into today is whether a, an art form, the art of war, which has to do with physical properties in a, in a three space, whether that has anything to do with uh, whether that has anything to do with cyberspace, how well that maps into cyberspace. Okay, so all of the militaries that you talk to are inherently profoundly oriented towards this post-treaty of Westphalia mindset uh, that, that is pretty much typical, typified by, by Klaus Wittze and Uh, Ideals that war is an extension of statecraft. Which, that's the first challenge I would throw up against cyber war, which is, is, you know, is cyber war a legitimate extension of statecraft? Right? That's a question. Um, That's another fun question to ask some of the proponents of cyber war. And then, of course, the other question that you ask them as an immediate follow-up, if they say yes, the immediate question you would ask them is you say, is terrorism then a... uh, uh, an extension of statecraft. And if they're, proper, if they're proper Clausewitzians from the Westphalian tradition, they will say no, because terrorists are not state actors by definition. Therefore, terrorists can't engage in war, they do terrorism, right? only states can engage in war. Which means that you individually, every one of you in this room, are not capable of declaring war as an individual against a state. Which I think is an interesting question in cyberspace. right? You as an individual are perfectly capable of declaring war against a state. So that's another thing to think about. Now, the really important problems, all all military problems break down into into, two different, um, they, they break down into a spectrum and you can decide where things fit on a spectrum. And one of the ways that you can always baffle an armchair general is by asking them whether they're referring to strategic issues or whether they're, they're talking tactically, right? And if you wanna to try to put down an armchair, armchair, any armchair general, you can say, oh, you're just thinking like a tactician. Even if they're actually operating a strategic level, you can say, well, you're just talking about strategy. I'm talking about grand strategy. I'm talking about meta grand strategy. In fact, I'm talking about theological metagrand strategy. You can just keep going as high as you want up the chain of claiming that you're operating strategically. But the purpose, uh, let's let's use some basic definitions here. The idea of strategy is the why of what you want to accomplish and tactics are the how you accomplish that thing. So to drop this into a Clausewitzian framework, you would say that there is some reason that two states are going to engage in conflict. The strategy is the why are they engaging in conflict and what do the states, what, what do the states that are engaging in conflict hope to gain from it. And usually that relationship is one wishes to be left alone and the other one wishes the other state's stuff somehow, right? And then the tactics are how you accomplish it. And do you accomplish that using strategic bombing? Do you accomplish that using invasion? Do you com- accomplish that using uh, insurgency or state-sponsored terror or uh, cyber war or whatever? So one of the profound questions that I want to be asking today, and I hope I can give you some answers sort of in- in- embedded through this talk, is the question of you know, where does cyber war fit on this continuum and it's very interesting because um cyber war is both either an irrelevant tactic or it's something you might think about as part of your strategic arsenal right um, and uh, again as, as as sun tzu would say if you don't understand the difference between strategy and tactics you you don't really belong you're not high enough to play in this game all right you're too short uh, a better way of putting it is from one of my favorite philosophers from the 80s, Buckaroo Banzai. If you don't know where you're going, how do you know when you get there? And that is, the, that is actually the ultimate strategic question, right? This is, this is the question that you can see again and again and again that states or militaries wind up losing their path when they engage in conflict and they have an ill-specified notion of victory, right? So we go over, we knock Iraq over, we go, woo, we won, and we completely forget about the aftermath piece, right? That would be an example of a strategic failure on top of a tactical success. Okay, so um, why is this important? The reason it's important is because our thinking about cyber war is completely locked into topological concepts. I just picked this as an example um, of some of the dialogue that's taking place surrounding cyber war, you've all seen this kind of thing, you know, China's the source of cyber espionage attacks, blah, 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 blah. The strategic question we should be asking is, is the source of an attack relevant at all? Who cares, right? If this is a strategic problem, and our doctrine is that we are simply going to defend as a matter of national strategy, I would argue that the source is irrelevant, possibly irrelevant. Another way of looking at it is if I know that I could resist your attacks, then the source is possibly irrelevant, right? If I'm capable of resisting all of your attacks, you can attack me all you like, and I really don't need to do anything at all, other than, you know, for you know some weird ego reasons or because I need to negotiate with you from a position of strength. So one of the other issues that I think you should always be thinking about when in the back of your mind when you hear these kinds of military analogies coming out about cyber cyber war, is that generally if you're talking to somebody who's taking a militaristic view of this, is that they are essentially arguing for enlarging their domain on top of somebody else, usually through some kind of force. And I, I, you know, that brings up another question, which is what does force mean in cyberspace? And we can talk about that a little bit later on. Now, if you're really interested in this stuff, probably one of the most important books that you can read is The Transformation of War by Martin Van Creveld, published in 1991, it's a fascinating book, really interesting. There's some things I don't think he gets entirely right. But um, the, the main gist of Van Creveld's argument along with Rob, Rod Paschal, who wrote Lick 2010, is that the militaries of the world have this creeping dread that they've realized that they're completely irrelevant. And the reason that they're realizing that they're completely irrelevant is that after, after the Korean War, we basically haven't seen these kinds of you know, large-scale land wars where you've got organized forces up against organized forces. And one of the distinctive things that we will see of warfare since the, since the end of the 20th century is that there are no front lines anymore. And most of the military thinking that the armies that we've got, especially the U.S. Army, is thinking in terms of front lines. And so one of the, the tremendous transformations you can see happening in almost every military um, is the realization that every time a superpower, so you've got these superpowers that are capable of eradicating almost everything in their path, and they keep losing to guys in sandals with AK-47s right? They've lost, basically, superpowers have lost every counterinsurgency that they have ever engaged in, which is really fascinating, right? Essentially, you can have, essentially you can have the, the most expensive army in the world. The United States spends more on, on its military than all the other countries in the world combined, which is pretty cool, right? And we still can't handle Afghanistan. Wow, that sucks. Now, it especially sucks if you're part of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff or something like this and your livelihood is to have you know, big tanks and shiny airplanes and all this kind of stuff. Because the obvious question when you keep losing these insurgencies to the, to the guys with the sandals and the AK-47s is why do you have all that expensive gear then? right? So that's really the underlying question I submit to you that's being asked with regard to cyber war, right? I think what's going on is that there are a lot of people in the military in the United States who are very concerned that someone is going to say, why do you have all of this cybersecurity stuff and you keep getting owned by 14-year-old kids? It's a great question. If I could answer it, I'd be rich, right? If I had to answer it, I'd be in a lot of trouble. All right. So what I want to do is try to deconstruct a few of these concepts of topological warfare and see how they apply to cyberspace and just kind of show you some neat pictures and, and, and wave my hands a lot. But the basic purpose of what I'm going to be doing for the next couple of minutes is trying to encourage you to kind of contemplate the wisdom of generalizing our existing understanding of warfare into this new medium. And so these are some of the concepts that we're gonna talk about, topological concepts and how they fit into cyber war, and let's just kind of get into it. Okay, so a castle. We, I, my God, how many times have we talked of a firewall as the castle and the moat and the drawbridge and all of this kind of stuff, which is a, you know, a really terrible analogy. I'm as guilty as the next guy. I coined the term bastion host, which has been in use since the late 1980s. You know, it was my fault, I was a dumb kid. Um, but the purpose of a castle, is to raise the cost of attack to the point where someone is gonna go someplace else. That's the strategic purpose of attack of a castle. Castles have a lot of other tactical purposes, but the strategic purpose is to dominate a region, right? If you can put this castle down and you can finish constructing it, the premise is that it's going to cost so much more for someone to take the castle than it costs for you to defend that they're basically going to give up. Uh, which is, you know, pretty good strategies right? And we've all heard this idea that firewalls are like the Maginot Line, which is, you know, everybody likes to make fun of the Maginot Line. Maginot Line is a very impressive piece of work. Anybody here visited it? Ah, okay, a couple of you. Yeah, it's it's pretty fricking impressive stuff, right? And one of the things that most people forget about the Maginot Line was that although the Germans famously overran it and it basically didn't even slow down, right, I think they stopped for tea, maybe that's about it. They come right over it, right? when the Allied troops were coming back the other way towards Germany, the Germans held the Maginot Line for a hell of a long time. So clearly, the problem wasn't the Maginot Line. Apparently, the problem was the French. Um, uh, sorry, but you know that's just reality. Um, I mean, if you can actually hold, if you can ha- think about this, if you can employ, if you can hold in, in place to defenses that are pointing the wrong way better than the guys who were holding them when they were pointing the correct direction. You have a problem someplace in the management stack. Um, and we've all heard about perimeter defenses the city of Carcassonne, fantastic. Example of, you know, again, if I was gonna take the cyber war model here, if I was gonna blow cyber war BS at you, I would go, wow, look at this as layered defenses. You've got the keep over here, you've got multiple walls. If something goes wrong with, you know, and, and, and you can visualize, you can visualize the hackers kind of scrambling around in that killing ground there in the middle and then dropping arrows on their heads and all kinds of fun stuff like that. This is all complete BS, but it, it, it works, right? Uh, this is one of my favorite castles of all time, Dun Angus, which absolutely exemplifies Sun Tzu's comment about if you're in difficult ground, press on, if you're, if you're hemmed in, use subterfuge, and if you're in death ground, fight. This is an example of death ground. If you are defending Dun Angus and you lose, your options are slim and none. Um, and then of course, there's another topological, a uh, great example of topological fighting, including a, you know, a castle that people put out, which is Dien Bien Fu. Uh, um And I guess one of the other su- uh, subtexts of this talk was it gave me a chance to actually dig out a whole bunch of Sun Tzu quotes. I, lo- yeah, I love the way we security practitioners love Sun Tzu, right? Uh, which is fantastic because Sun Tzu is mostly talking about strategy, computer security is all about tactics, and we really don't understand why Sun Tzu quotes sound so good, but they don't help us at all. And that's the reason. because we're not thinking about this as a strategic problem. We're thinking about this as a tactical problem, which is exactly what the French were doing, which got them into Dien Bien Phu, and it didn't work particularly well. But probably one of my favorite quotes from Sun Tzu is this one down here on the left. Strategy without tactics is the slowest route to victory. Right. So if you've got a... If you've got a if you've got the ability to maneuver your enemy into where you want them to be, or maybe it's simply that you're huge and they're small, you can just tell them what to do, right? It may take you a lot longer. But, if, but the flip side of that is if you're really, really good at fighting battles, but you have no idea why you're fighting them, you're going to wind up in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, which, of course, is a you know, recipe for defeat, right? There's the, other, the, the, the wonderful old joke about um, how do you win a land war in Asia, Right, never fight a land war in Asia is the other the other version of it. Right, the other way the other way of putting it is to be Russian. If you're Russian, you will win land wars in Asia. This has hap- this has been demonstrated time and time and time again. Uh, there's another version of that that I'm I'm, I'm very fond of, which is never getting a war of passive aggressive with a cat. Um, but uh, here's another example of a topological castle, uh, famous feature. And this is somewhat relevant to our experience in computer security, if you want to think about it that way. Um, the Huns, you know, it was built to keep the Huns out, and the Huns were collecting so much money in tribute uh, from all, the, all the, the, the peoples that they had conquered that they simply bought their way through it. <laughs> Whoops. Um, so if you think about that, I, I think they were literally, we're talking 1,500 pounds of gold or something like that. They just kind of pulled up with a big cart and said, all of this is yours if you leave right now. And the guys guarding the wall said, hmm. Right? Our choices are, A, we have to fight the Huns, which kind of sucks. B, we could have a golden retirement and no fighting. Okay, that's pretty, that's pretty much of a no-brainer. Um, this is another example of uh, uh, sort of failure. This the, best, the best castle ever built, Tracte de Chevalier, built by the Knights, of, uh, the Knights Templars, the Knights of St. John, and the Hospitallers. It's up in uh, Syria. Um, it, uh, it, it was bombed by the Israelis a bunch of years ago, and you really can't tell it. Right? It's a big, massive pile of wa- rock. Those walls are 32 foot thick at the base. This is a very impressive thing. If you think about the economic cost in the, you know, in the 11th century of building something like this, it's just absolutely massive. I mean, this, this is the B-2 bomber of the Crusades, basically. Um, and much like the B-2 bomber, it sucked. Um, it was basically unconquerable. And so uh, Baybars, the, the, the king of the Mamelukes, um, uh, came up and uh, in 1271 he came up and, and started to lay siege to it and, uh, and then produced a forged letter which he showed to the, the commander of the castle defenses who apparently wasn't very bright that appeared to come from the, 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 the chief of the order of the knights of St. John saying it is acceptable for you to surrender if Baybars the Mameluke shows up and the guy read it and said oh okay we're, we're out of here and that was it All right. Now, this is a castle that probably could have held out against Baybar's force for a year or two without too much difficulty. But, you know, again, you've got to wonder whether the commander of the castle uh, took a look at all these guys pulling up outside and said, you know, I I think I'm going to go for the golden retirement. The the key point is I'll be alive. Now, one of the other values of a castle, and the reason they're so important in topological space is because they... They allow you to have the high ground. We always talk about seizing the high ground. Again, if somebody wants to talk about seizing the high ground in cyberspace, be suspicious of this. But this is the real value of a castle like Crac de Chevalier. If you're, if you're dealing with a time in which the fastest that a military force could move is on horseback, look at the horizon on this thing, right? I mean, if there was somebody coming to attack you, you have... What, 24 hours or something like that, probably to pull your people inside the wall and, and prepare. Ooh, look, night's nice, way over there, right? None of this applies. Now, the reason that I wanted to raise this is because none of the notion of tactical surprise makes a whole lot of sense in cyber war. I would argue if, to use the term tactical surprise, surprise in cyber war is probably just not even appropriate. But let's imagine that we're going to use that term, right? What does tactical surprise in cyber war mean? I'll give you a hint. Every attack you ever are subjected to, you will be, they will have tactical surprise, right? So the term tactical surprise is completely meaningless in cyber war because you will always be surprised. Even if anonymous says, I'm attacking you on Wednesday, they're probably not gonna tell you, and it's gonna be coming from this IP address on this port, why don't you put a block in, right? Um, that's not going to happen. You are always going to be subject to tactical surprise in the cyberspace. So another this is another one of these places where these kinds of models begin to break down, okay? So what are the lessons that a cyber warrior can learn from castles? Well, all of the topological values of castles, everything to do with, you know, increased line of sight, all this kind of stuff, completely useless, completely irrelevant, right? We can talk about the question of cost effectiveness We could maybe use castles as a model for talking about whether or not our defenses are effective, whether that's a good idea to invest in those. But I I really don't see how that makes a lot of sense. In fact, if you really wanted to talk about castles as a model for their use in cyberspace, the only value of them as a metaphor is fail, right? You can say castles are this thing, or firewalls or whatever it is, firewalls are this thing that you can spend a great deal of money on that are a static defense that's going to always fail because someone's going to buy their way through it. That's what we see through history. Either someone's going to fool your admins, uh, like they did at Crack des Chevaliers, um, or, or they're going to just buy their way through it. Um, okay, so other problems. The next area of military thought, which winds up getting generalized into cyberspace, is all of these terms from maneuver warfare, right? And um, the, the, the terms from maneuver warfare... Are fascinating. You'll hear people talking about active defense and you know, we want to we fight a battle of maneuver in cyberspace and you kind of go, what, 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 what are you talking about? How, what, are you talking about moving your routers around? No, that doesn't make any sense. Are you talking about reconfiguring your networks? Well, that, that doesn't make any strategic sense either. I mean, if you could actually think of some way that changing your network around would actually help, then we could maybe talk about it. But th- this, this, this concept, again, doesn't really match, right? But in real warfare, it's absolutely critical. In real warfare, maneuver is the single most important element about it. So, right here is a general refutation of the whole notion of cyber war as a domain of warfare. How can you call something a domain of warfare when the most important property of warfare does not apply to it? That's, that's a specious question. I mean, I, I can't answer it. I, my answer would be, no, you can't, right? It doesn't make any sense at all, right? All of the great successes we see in warfare have to do with maneuver. All the great failures we see in warfare pretty much have to do with maneuver or logistics. And maneuver and logistics are you know, joined at the hip at a strategic level. Right? Now, the notion of maneuver warfare is seen as an intellectual backgr- backlash to the meat grinder effect of, of World War I and slightly less so to the meat grinder effect of of the Napoleonic Wars, although the Napoleonic Wars were, were, were really interesting wars of maneuver, the First World War was an absolute failure in those terms. I mean, basically, people just stood there and shot at each other. And then they, you know, when that didn't work, they'd charge each other with bayonets, and then they'd machine gun each other. It really, it really didn't work particularly well, right? But the key point of successful maneuver warfare, if we want to talk about maneuver warfare in cyberspace, is that successful maneuver warfare entails defeating your ability, defeating your opponent's ability to fight, either by cutting them off, breaking their logistics. Um, or, or attacking their forces, sorry, this is a counterforce doctrine, is that you're basically, uh, okay, so you're either going to try to surround your enemy and put them in a position where they can't afford to fight because they either run out of supplies or they feel disconnected from their main force and they've got morale problems or whatever, or you simply attack them and eradicate them and then you can, you can move on, right? Again, think about that in terms of cyberspace. How does that apply? How does maneuver warfare apply there? Can you eradicate somebody's firewall? No, can you, you know, can you eradicate a hacker? I suppose you can block their IP address, but that doesn't constitute eradicating anybody by any kind of stretch uh, of the imagination, right? So again, we've got these purely topological concepts of warfare that don't apply uh, when, you, when you pull them forward into cyberspace, right? And then, and then of course we've got the defense in depth model in topological warfare. Which we use, and we use this term in computer security. We use it completely wrong. The idea of defense in depth is that you've got, you know, a heavy cavalry regiment like uh, like the Scots Greys at Waterloo that are poised. So if there's a if there's a break appearing in your lines, you can throw them in there and plug plug the break immediately, right? And that's a typical thing that you would do in maneuver warfare. Napoleon called it a frost de frappe. Um, it's a, basically it's a maneuver element. But again, does, how does this apply to, to, to cyber war? How many, of you have a, how many of you have a spare you know, firewall that you can throw into your network? It's completely meaningless. How many of you have... I, mean, I suppose the only thing you could do is you could say you've got intellectual firepower that you can bring to bear. You know, this, you've got your emergency response team, and they're your, they're your maneuver element that you're going to throw in on defense in depth. But at this point, to just use the term defense in depth um, as in maneuver warfare, you, you've stretched that term until it's already at the snapping point. It really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. right? So so far, you've probably noticed a trend here. I keep po- talking about these different aspects of the art of war and pointing out that they have absolutely frickin' nothing to do with cyberspace, right? Um, so how does maneuver warfare apply to cyber war? Well, not really, right. A spoiling attack, by the way, is, uh, a spoiling attack is when your, your, your enemy is getting ready to launch an attack against you, and in, in real space, in, in topological warfare, you actually have to muster your troops. Right? So someone is collecting their troops so that they can come and attack you, and what you do is you attack them first while they're maneuvering. Right? This, is what, this is what Caesar did at Alesia. The, the Romans did the, basically every, every battle that Gaius Marius or Julius Caesar ever fought and won horrifically was usually because they managed to sucker their enemies into being in the middle of reforming when they attacked them, which is a fantastic strategy. And again, how does this apply to cyberspace? It doesn't. It absolutely doesn't. Right? I mean, the, clo- the only way I could think that any of this stuff might make any sense in cyber war would be, I suppose, if you attacked someone's website while they were in the middle of setting it up. That doesn't make any sense, right? So none of this makes any sense, right? Um, again, spoiling attacks make sense. In, in uh, The quintessential spoiling attack would be the Israeli ground assault during the Six-Day War. They saw that the Egyptians were, were quite clearly preparing to attack them, right? and they attacked them first. They attacked them at their staging grounds. This was very annoying for the Egyptians. It worked out very well for the Israelis. It was brilliant strategic uh, victory. Um, how does this apply to cyberspace? It doesn't. Right? And so, again, when you, when, you, when, you, when you hear the guys in Washington who are talking about that they want to go on an active defense and they want to do these kinds of basically doing spoiling attacks, what they're really saying is we want to attack somebody. But here's the problem. They don't know who to attack. They don't know where to attack. Right? They have absolutely no ability to sit there and go, hey, this IP address range is going to be trouble for us next week. We can see that, that IP address, the, the enemy is gathering behind this IP address, and they're going to attack us, so let's knock them off. It, what? This is absolutely nonsensical. Um, uh, the, 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 the only thing I can figure is that um, the, closest, the closest thing that, that sort of works is the, is the tactics of mistake concept, which is, which is to um, begin a series of operations that lure your enemy into doing something stupid. And I could see that you might be able to do that in cyberspace. I mean, dot .coms do this all the time. Um, but, but basically, they do it to themselves, right? I mean, the, the probably the quintessential example of the tactics of mistake would be September 11th, in which a, a relatively inexpensive attack caused the U.S. to, to head punch itself, silly. Um, uh, which, you know, was absolutely brilliant, right? And, and that's, that, that among us armchair generals is one of the, the, the favorite topics of discussion. Was, you know, was bin Laden just a lucky idiot or was bin Laden the greatest strategic genius of all time since Sun Tzu? And there's some indications that he thought that he would, be able to, he would be able to do this operation and lure the United States into Afghanistan. And then there's other people who think that he didn't really think that, that he just kind of tried to glue that on afterwards after it worked. But either way, it worked absolutely fantastically, right? But again, why is this relevant to cyber war? It's not. It doesn't apply to cyber war at all, except for the fact that the tactics of a mistake is a strategic concept, even though it's called tactics. It's a strategic concept. It's that if you can get your opponent to think tactically and you're thinking strategically, you can lure them around by the nose, Right? John Boyd famously described this in his notion of the OODA loops, which is a term I absolutely despise, so I won't go into OODA loops in any great detail, but the whole idea is that if you can get inside of your opponent's inside of your opponent's thought process, you can always lead them around by the nose. Tactics of Mistake is much better. By the way, I like the Gordon Dixon books, and I highly recommend them. Okay. Now, the reason that this is important is that offensive operations are cheaper than defense. I know that sounds kind of weird, but... Um, the reasons, the reasons that they're cheaper is because defense usually um, represents a sunk cost, right? So if you build Crac de Chevalier, you've, cost, you've sunk all of this humongous economic effort into building Crac de Chevalier, and somebody goes around it, right? Or you build, you build the Maginot line, and someone goes over it. You spend all this time, you build this incredibly expensive thing, and then your enemy basically figures out a way of ignoring it, right? So the, the, the attacker usually has the advantage because the attacker is able to pick the most cost-effective attack for them. And usually that's going to ignore your most expensive and least cost-effective. It's going to make less expensive your most expensive or less effective your most expensive defenses, right? So if you can, if you can bypass Carcassonne, that's, that's a good move. So, again, uh, I I already talked about this, but uh, spoiling attacks are a defensive operation that's basically modeled as an offensive operation. Now, again, what does this have to do with cyber war? Well, the best defense is a strong offense is a term I've heard several times inside the Washington Beltway. We need to basically be able to defend by what? Punching somebody else out before before we know who's even going to attack us? I mean, it kind of makes sense if someone is bearing down on you going, I'm going to kick your ass but it absolutely doesn't make sense if you're talking about this in a cyber war context. I mean, if we wanted to you know, sort of imagine this room as a cyber war context, I don't know which one of you is about ready to attack me. I have no way of knowing. So what, I'm gonna just punch this guy in the front row because he's in reach, right? This doesn't make any sense unless you're from Washington, D.C. That's how we do things in America. Um, I mean, it kind of makes a certain amount of sense, right? I mean, it's, it's sort of like, how many of you would you get in a fist fight with Mike Tyson? right? I wouldn't either, right? That's because he's Mike freaking Tyson, and he'd bite your ear off. So, so by biting Evander Holyfield's ear off, Mike Tyson basically put himself beyond attack by most normal human beings. Okay, so that kind of works, and that's a strategy that the United States and the, and the United Kingdom followed for a very long time, right? If you mess with our little islands in the middle of no place, we'll send our Navy down and kick your ass for no apparent reason. But, but you know, it looks pretty good. Um, but the point is, again, it makes sense in topological warfare to do the best defense as a strong offense. But in cyberspace, a strong offense against anything doesn't make any sense, especially if your strategic objective is to defend yourself. If your, tr- if your strategic objective is to keep your data from being exfiltrated, if your strategic objective is to keep your systems from being tampered with, it makes absolutely no, off- no sense to be worrying about attacking somebody else because there's still gonna be people attacking it while you're attacking somebody else. Now, you don't have the problem that you have in topological warfare where you've got your knights all around, your knights are all out bashing on some other guys and then someone comes and attacks you, right? Essentially, the great thing about cyberspace is you get to create as many forces as you, you like so you can attack as many people as you possibly can at once. But this doesn't make any sense. If your objective is to defend yourself, you have to be constantly on the defensive. And this is why, I've been saying for the last five years, which which annoys the Washington types to no end, that in cyberspace, the best defense is a strong defense. In fact, the only defense in cyberspace is a strong defense. The only thing you can do, actually, is to defend yourself. Because the idea of attacking somebody else as part of a spoiling attack or as part of uh, an attack of maneuver or something like that, it makes absolutely no freaking sense, right? So all this stuff doesn't apply. Here's the... Here's the question that got me started down this entire train of thought. I was drinking too much alcohol with somebody at, uh, at a conference in Boston, and we were going back and forth about this whole cyber war thing, and I suddenly blurted out, what does winning even mean in cyberspace? And I realized, it doesn't. Even the concept of victory doesn't mean anything. Well, so let's take the Battle of Crecy, right? Crecy was basically a dry run for Agincourt. Apparently, the French don't learn so much. And of course, as, as uh, Wellington said at Waterloo, they came on in the same old way and we defeated them in the same old way, referring back to hundreds of years of engagements with the French in which the French appeared to charge the English and get their asses kicked. Um, but what happened at Crecy was so fascinating. Basically, the French army attacked and was so resoundingly defeated, right? They they had a bunch of knights charging across a muddy field at a bunch of longbowmen, and the longbowmen just kicked the shit out of them. Um, There were something like like 25 casualties in the English force, and the the French force was about 50% wiped out. Just brilliant, right? Now, what actually happened was that the defeat at Crecy was so profound that France surrendered. The King of France just went, okay, I quit. Now, generalize this to cyberspace. How's this going to happen? Imagine that a bunch of hackers or whatever are attacking your network. Can you imagine defeating the attacker so resoundingly that they just surrender? Or can you imagine attacking someone so resoundingly that they just surrender? What does that even mean? Right? As far as I can tell, the only way that you could really declare victory in a cyberspace, a cyber battle, I suppose... Would be if you were cisco and microsoft combined and you said we own you surrender that's it we're done right or intel intel cisco and microsoft say you lose and and, and you know the enemy goes you're right <laughs> what do you want right i mean that that was that would be what victory would look like in cyberspace it's not going to happen right certainly because those guys aren't going to work together All right? so i've already talked about that you cannot conclusively drive your opponent away the reason that victory is an important thing is because in topological warfare, if you attack me with 1,000 tanks and I destroy them, you no longer have 1,000 tanks. You have to build another 1,000 tanks. In cyberspace, if you attack, if you attack me with 1,000 IP addresses, uh, well, if, I knock, if I filter those, so what? You're going to have 100,000. Whatever. It doesn't make any sense at all. Right? This is another place where the whole dynamics of warfare, as we, as we think about warfare, simply do not apply to cyberspace, right? So you, you simply cannot cost your opponents so much that they're going to give up. You cannot win, which is why, I, you know, my last point here, I do not think cyberspace is a military domain. And this is going to really upset a lot of the cyberspace, you know, cyber war proponents because they're going, oh, yes, it is. We, you know, only if you stretch analogies to the breaking point. Right? If you want to stretch your analogies to the breaking point, that's fine, but you're not, you're not actually being a strategic thinker if what you're doing is you're desperately trying to find analogies in old thinking that apply to a completely new, totally different field. You suck if that's what you're doing. All right? um, so you can tell them I said that. Um, now, let's talk about some other stuff. Insurgency. I actually believe that what the governments of the world are not afraid of, they're not really afraid of cyber war. I think they're afraid of cyber insurgency. If you want to, again, stretch analogies, if you want to say uh, that we're going to, um, we're going to use the tactics of the AK-47 and sandal crowd against, against government networks, I think that terrifies them, right? Because in those situations, they're going to lose, and they know that they're going to lose. Here's... Here's the quintessential rule for how to lose a topological insurgency. If you're, fighting in, if you're fighting in meat space, you will always lose an insurgency if there's some kind of a neighboring border where the insurgents can cross the hill, lie low, and regroup, right? So if, you, if you're fighting in Vietnam and the Viet Cong can go up and hide in Cambodia, you're gonna lose. Anyone with any strategic sense would have looked at that and said, forget it, we're done. We're not gonna go in there. It's just not going to work, right? Now, this doesn't apply to cyberspace either. Or, if you wanted to apply to cyberspace, what you'd basically say is that all of cyberspace is the reservoir for the insurgents. Every single piece of the internet is a reservoir for the insurgency. In which case, don't fight an insurgency in cyberspace. That's the only advice I can give you about that. So where does cyber war fit in all of this stuff? If we wanna still, I mean, I, I, yeah, I'm at the point where I wanna ban people from using the word cyber war, but we need a new word for it. And I think computer security would be a good term, but I, I don't think people are gonna just suddenly stop using the word, right? So here's where it fits. It fits in espionage and it fits in low, uh, low intensity conflict. Now espionage, haha, espionage works, and espionage always works. Why? Espionage is a strategic activity. You target someone, you figure out what it is that they want, and you set in place a long-term strategy that's going to get what you want from them by gathering that information surreptitiously. In a sense, um, espionage is the antithesis of warfare. Espionage is the art of winning without actually fighting, which, as Bruce Lee will tell you, is the way to do it, right? Um, In fact, Sun Tzu, every single serious military thinker since time began has told you that the best way to win is to defeat your opponent without actually fighting them. And the reason espionage works is because you're basically getting inside the command loop, you're getting inside the technology loop and all this kind of stuff. Now, this is places where I suppose you could say it does apply to cyber war, right? If you could get, uh, if you could get code inside of Microsoft Windows or, or, or you can get code inside of a, a controller for an antenna on a smartphone or something like that. There's all kinds of things, right? So the argument I'd make here though is that the addition of cyber doesn't change espionage at all. In fact, cyber whatever is just an additional little toothpick in this gigantic tool bag that spies have had, uh, techniques that spies have had since you know forever. So it's, it's almost irrelevant. Although if you wanna talk about cyber espionage, yeah, rock on, have fun with it. This is the place where it's gonna be interesting, is low intensity conflict. Now we do need to talk about this. Low intensity conflict is an idea which borders, it rides on the border between insurgency and something else. And the idea of low-intensity conflict could be state-sponsored terrorism, it could be insurgency. The whole idea is that you're doing some kind of spoiler operations as part of a strategic plan to get somebody to do something. Again, it has to be in the, unless you're just a, a, a crazy, mad anarchist, it has to be in service of some kind of a strategic goal. So an example of low intensity conflict in a a strategic context might be simply uh, exactly what we've got going on in Afghanistan. We're gonna keep putting IEDs under your cars and occasionally blowing up your extremely expensive soldiers with relatively um, relatively inexpensive explosives and we can keep doing this all day. We're gonna keep doing this until you in fact leave. And that's a perfect example of the dynamics of low intensity conflict and those dynamics do apply very well in cyberspace, right? In cyberspace, you can actually make uh, the equivalent of low-intensity conflict by identifying what you want to accomplish and then simply forcing your opponent to dance to your song by being so unpleasant that eventually they start to do what you want, right? And Rod Paschel, um and, and Van Kreveld, I, I, I think they've gone pretty far out on a limb, but so far they seem to be right. And their, their argument is that since 1945, although these, uh, Van Kreveld seems to have forgotten the Korean War, I'm not quite sure how he did that, but he did. Because um, the Korean War certainly wasn't a low-intensity conflict. But Van Kraveld's argument is that since, since uh, let's say since the Korean War, so we'll patch Van Kraveld on the fly, but since the Korean War, everything has just been insurgencies. There haven't really been any of these big you know, people lining up their tanks and, and having these big, massive tank battles, except for against the Israelis. Um, a fascinating book I highly recommend if you want to dig into this stuff is a book called Lick 2010 by Rod Paschal. And what he does is he lays, out, um, he lays out what the military force structure of the future is going to have to look like, which, of course, since he was writing this in 1990, he was talking about the military force structure of today, which is essentially troops that are capable of handling this kind of low-intensity conflict. And Paschel was was fairly famous because, you know, he was the guy who was saying— um, we don't need Abrams tanks and B two bombers. What we need is special forces, and we need you know we need special forces and helicopters and drones and stuff like that. And he called out a lot of stuff correctly. The only thing the only thing I can think of in Lake twenty ten that he didn't call out correctly is he thought that infantry were going to be carrying directed energy weapons by by now. You know, and, and I want my rocket pack, but it didn't happen. Um, so from if you want to analogize low-intensity conflict out into cyberspace, we've got the problem of cyber insurgency, which is that you can, um, you can think of the internet as an opportunity for an insurgency to take place, and that's, you know, there's some decent, decent analogies there, but I don't think that's really good. Okay, so I'm almost done. Why is all this relevant? You're probably thinking, what the hell does, does all this military stuff have to do with me, right? It's got a lot to do with you. You're a target. The premise of low-intensity conflict, the premise of the breakdown of von klaus Witzian warfare is that there is no front line anymore. You're it. Everybody's the front line. The disadvantage of this kind of distributed warfare in which people can declare war, right? An individual can declare war on a state in cyberspace. They can't do it in topological space because they're just gonna get their asses kicked. But it could go the opposite direction in cyberspace, right? And the problem with that is it means that every single one of us is potentially a target. And uh, that's interesting, right? We basically have moved back to prehistoric raiding. And the, 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 the model in prehistoric days, when the castle Dun Angus that I showed you, the one that's up, the Irish Iron Age fort that's up on the edge of the cliff, you know, every single town expected to be attacked by any other town at any other time completely at random. There was no such thing. Diplomacy hadn't been invented yet. Right, so you basically you could come home and find your house burning and everybody slaughtered, or you could go out and find somebody else's house and burn and slaughter them, and that's how it was going. That's the model we're moving towards today. Right, so this is all relevant. Now here's the fun part: in cyberspace, it's the private sector that's got the most effective response, and I think one of the reasons that we've got the most respective response, uh, effective response in the in the private sector is because we're not stuck in this 20th century land war mode. Right. We computer security practitioners who work in the, in, the, in the private sector use the terms, the very rich terms of computer security. We're not sitting here trying to analogize stuff. We can use terms like denial of service attack. We have a very rich vocabulary that doesn't draw upon misleading and inaccurate analogies that cause us to not understand the problem as well. Right? We security practitioners have to avoid using this kind of military speak that doesn't apply, that doesn't work, because what we're doing is we're actually obscuring the problem as we go forward, and I think that's a really bad idea. Right? And I think the consequence of that, and the reason that this is important for us to talk about, is the, the, the bottom point here. Because the military does not understand cyberspace, they're basically taking the Mike Tyson approach, which is, well, we know how to beat the crap out of people. We're good at that. So what we're gonna do, the way we're gonna handle cyberspace is we're gonna beat the crap out of people because that's what actually, that's all we know how to do. And that's a big problem, right? Because they're not approaching this as a strategic issue and they're not approaching this as a domain that they're actually going to understand. They're trying to hammer cyberspace into the state of being a domain that they can understand so that they can control it using the techniques and tactics that have sort of more or less kind of worked for them for a long time, right? So that's basically the point that I had to make. Everyone's a target, this is gonna get worse. The militarists are gonna continue to move into cyberspace. It's a big, pro- it's a huge, huge money pump right now, right? They're looking at having all of their pet programs cut because of budgetary problems. Um, and now they're trying to figure out where they can spend that next taxpayer's dollar. And they're gonna buy hacking tools and they're gonna use them on you because they wanna make sure they work, right? Or they're gonna use them on somebody anyway. They're gonna get used, right? So there's not gonna be an information security piece to it and this isn't gonna get, this isn't gonna help. And so one of the predictions I'll make is that the militarization of cyberspace is gonna result in a huge amount of money being spent and no no market improvement in computer security and a market disimprovement because basically they're, you know, we got guys from the Department of Glass Houses here are building stone-throwing technology and it's just really not a a really good idea. So um, uh, Mencius is actually the only person that I quoted in this presentation who was not a military strategist He was a philosopher, and his point was that people who benefit through victory are always dishonorable. Right. So we need to understand cyberspace as a strategic domain, not fall into this short-sighted thinking from the late 20th century. Um, Anyone know what the picture? uh, Anyone know what these two pictures are? Okay, the one on the right is the Fortress of Eben Mile, which was built at, the, built at the end of World War I in Belgium, and was designed to withstand anything. And the Germans went through it like, uh, like a, a rock through a window, basically. They just blew the whole thing apart because uh, they had shaped charges, which, the, the, which nobody had invented before that. And the, um, the picture on the left is actually one of the trapdoors to the tun- tunnels at Ku Chai. The Viet Cong had this strategic problem where they couldn't actually win in a face-to-face fight. And so they adopted the technique of simply existing underground where they were completely invisible, which was, which was a, a terrible, uh, terribly effective strategy against the the Clausewitzian type. So here's some other places you might want to take a look at if you're interested in this topic um, and some recommendations for, for books. Um, I, I did put The Art of War on there because it, you, you kind of have to. Um, uh, but, uh, you know... My, my, my suggestion about the art of war, and so many computer security practitioners do this, they pick up that absolutely incredible book and they just kind of go, oh, let's see, I need a quote for my next PowerPoint. Ooh, that, that one sounds good. No, read the goddamn book. It's a wonderful piece of literature. Um, and it's actually fairly well, fairly well written in most of the modern translations. So, um, so thank you. Do I have time for questions or should I run away? Yeah, let's, let's, let's have us okay. have I have time for a couple of questions if anyone's got them. Otherwise, I'm just going to run away.
0: One well, just here? Yeah. Can we wait for the... Can you... What about
1: cyber diplomacy? What about cyber diplomacy was his question. That's fantastic. Diplomacy Diplomacy is... is diplomacy is outside of the art of war, right? Diplomacy is the statecraft. And um, I'm, i I believe... I believe it was Isaac Asimov who said that war is what happens when diplomats fail. And I really do believe that that is completely accurate. What's going on with a lot of the, the, the U.S. government pointing at China and shrieking, cyber war, cyber war, cyber war, is simply, um, um, it's like hoisting the clueless Roger. It's basically saying, we don't understand this problem at all. Um, please kick our ass some more. And the Chinese, who, by the way, do actually read Sun Tzu, it might be for some reason. Um, uh, you know, I, I, all I can figure is that they're probably just face palming you know which which by the way i mean diplomacy th- th- this is a really important topic i talk- i'm going to answer just his question and n- nobody else's cuz cuz it's it's <laughs> cause it's it's, a, it's such an important question right one of the things that we've been seeing a great deal in the cyber war space in the us is the fbi is sitting here going chinese cyber attacks chinese spy why? and the real int- the really interesting question here is why is a junior branch of the department of justice accusing another nation state of acts of war that should be coming from the State Department. So if I worked for the Chinese, which I don't, my response would be you know, to issue a press release every time the FBI did one of these, ah, China cyber war things, which basically said, would you please sit down and shut up? You know, If, if Hillary Clinton wants to come talk to us about this, we will handle this at a diplomatic level. And that's, that's the way that this has to be done. I don't think that there's any rational analogies to diplomacy that can be made in cyber, cyberspace. I mean, my router's not going to negotiate anything with your router other than BGP routes, right? Um, but, but again, at the strategic level, being able to figure out what your opponent wants is, is absolutely critical to being able to make certain that your opponent does what you want them to do. I mean, the, the ultimate thing of diplomacy is if both sides are convinced that they've made a great deal, Right, and that's the, the proverbial win-win type situation, and, and it goes directly in the face of all this conflict mongering. So, thank you. Sure. Oh.